um, last week, which um, some of you were here for and some of you not, which is the theme of uh, freedom. And I was, um, I've been originally partly inspired by the 4th of July and was um, thinking about freedom in, in three ways that I looked at um, two of them in depth last time. But I'm wondering in terms of, um, I had a, a, a talk prepared and um, uh, in terms of time, I won't be able to give the whole talk unless we go a little bit over. So I'm wondering how many of you need to leave right at 11? A number of you. Okay, so I won't do that. I won't go over. Um, but I'll, I'll, see what, I'll see what happens. <laughs> but I'll probably be... Um, I'll be condensed. <laughs> It'll be, be briefer. <clears throat> So last time I was focusing on the theme of freedom and partly energized by the 4th of July, I was thinking about freedom really in terms of three main aspects. Um, One was what I was identifying as the social dimension of freedom, which is especially Um, brought up on the 4th of July and brought up when we look to the larger social world, which is and been especially focused on in uh, Western societies the last few centuries. It's really particularly the freedom to um, live one's life in a way as one sees fit, to have the freedom, we might say, of self-determination, to have the freedom of... um, religion, of movement, to have what are called the civil liberties. We could call those the civil freedoms of speech and so forth. And I read a little bit from the Declaration of Independence, some of the first lines, which really is a document of freedom, more in the social sense. Uh, we, all, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so that's one of the main themes of freedom. It's one that some of us may take somewhat for granted. I think living in this society, we have certain freedoms that we may take somewhat for granted. Of course, not taken for granted in large parts of the world. And um, at certain times in Western society, obviously, Civil liberties have, not, are, you know, have their ebbs and flows in this society, in which they're sometimes abrogated, you know, and abrogated for certain people, and so forth. But that's one whole dimension of freedom. That's, we might call it the social. And last time I particularly focused on two more inner aspects of freedom. One of them, which is connected with what I called ordinary mind. I wasn't meaning ordinary mind in a negative sense, but the, the inner freedom really to have um, the capacity not to be ruled by our own minds and hearts and bodies, not to be dominated by whatever comes along in our experience. This is a primary emphasis in our meditation. That is, how can I be free from my own mind? <laughs> Okay, (laughs) recognition, (laughs) recognition of the issue. How can I be free of my own conditioning, which has me 
follow certain, we might say using um, the context of the brain, follow certain neural pathways without fail whenever certain stimuli are aroused, right? Someone, you know, I have certain reactions when something bad happens, when I have, you know, also when something good happens. I want to, you know, the, the Buddhist psychology is that we typically uh, compulsively reach out for the positive and push away the negative. And, and that sounds rather innocent to say it like that, but what that manifests as in our experience is being compulsive about certain things that we take to be pleasurable, which in, at its um, extreme can take the form of addictions or you know, less serious, what we might call everyday addictions, um, reaching for the pleasure and then pushing away the unpleasant can manifest in terms of what's linked with suffering as um, relationships that are, that are broken or communication that's broken down, or patterns of blaming and judging of self and other, and obviously connect with a lot of suffering. And so there's this um, inner freedom, and I'll come back to that, this inner freedom not to be so ruled by our own minds. And a third aspect of freedom that I talked about is what I talked about is connected with what I called extraordinary mind, or extraordinary mind. It's sort of a, a deep aspect of our being in which we can increasingly, as we practice, rest, which in a sense is beyond ordinary mind. And that there is a deep dimension, or you might call it a depth dimension to freedom, in which we can rest in something very powerful, beautiful, and profound about our nature, which in a sense is beyond all conditioning and ultimately gives freedom in any conditions, even the conditions, as I mentioned last time, of severe or extreme events. And I pointed to some of the Tibetan practitioners who seem to maintain contact to that extraordinary level of mind, even in prison, even at times with torture. And many traditions have pointed to how that quality of presence can be there even with um, illness, even in dying, in the dying process. So that third aspect of freedom is a quality of um, deep freedom beyond conditions. And I'll come back to that as well. And so we can ask, I think, two basic questions about these three aspects of freedom. First, how do we develop? in these processes of freedom? How do we become more free? You know, what do we actually do? Sounds nice, right? What do we actually do to cultivate freedom in all of these three dimensions, the social, the inner dimension of what I'm calling ordinary mind and the, what we might call deeper dimension of extraordinary mind. How do we actually develop in those um, three ways? And then another natural question is how are the three related? Are they just different, separated dimensions of our lives? How how are those three dimensions related? And I'm I'm going to not so much talk about that now, but I thought I'd read a beautiful passage that I read last week from Gary Snyder, which really bears repeating. Uh, Written in 1961, Gary Snyder's great 
poet, Zen, Zen student, uh, activist, and so forth, he said this, which is really pointing to the three, the ways that these three dimensions are related. He didn't, he didn't identify those three in the same way I did, but you can hear them if you listen. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. That's a beautiful statement. I'm continually inspired by that statement. It really partly points towards the the bridge that connects the inner and the outer being ethics, being the ethical dimension. How we act with others and ultimately how we act in the larger society. And, And I'll come back to that. I'm thinking of talking more about the bridge um, in one of the next two times. I'll see how far I get today in terms of some of the other themes. But I wanted particularly to uh, look right today, not so much at the interrelation of the three and not so much at the social today, but more asking the question, how do we actually do it? How do we actually develop a sense of freedom in what I'm calling ordinary mind and what I'm calling extraordinary mind? And how do we actually develop, how do we actually cultivate that? I've talked about the sense of freedom in terms of ordinary mind as particularly being able to not be driven by our own minds and hearts and bodies. In other words, not be driven by the um, old patterns, old habits, not be driven by uh, something negative happening to blame self or other, not be driven by um, anger to go into polarization and ending of relationships, not to be driven by uh, grief to go into brooding and stuckness and depression, not to be driven by uh, thoughts to go into fear and kind of what we might call catastrophic thinking. You know, it's very, you know, in working with people, I find that the single most common uh, suggestion I make is be careful of the scary thoughts that you tell yourself. Single most important suggestion. Be really careful, track with mindfulness the stories that you tell yourself, particularly the ones that have negative meaning. In other words, I am this, I am that, this is the way it'll be, this is what's going to happen. This is the way I'll always be. You know those ones? I think we all have those. Even, you know, uh, not, you know and that it, to have some freedom with those kinds of thoughts, those kind of fears, is incredibly powerful. You know, that, how much of our lives have we spent under the rule or under the power of those kind of thoughts? 
How many of you would raise your hand and say a significant amount? <laughs> yep. And our practice lets us have more freedom around those thoughts, around difficult experiences. And the mechanism is pretty straightforward. If I could say it like this, it's not very complicated. We use especially our main tool, which is that of mindfulness. And we know what's going on and have enough awareness of it and space around it so that we can not have it simply lead onward to its inexorable consequences. I haven't used the word inexorable for several years, but it came up at this moment. Um, I mean, what, I mean, what it means is, some of you may have used it last in high school and forgotten what it means. It means, what does it mean? It means necessarily leading in this direction, something like that. Unrelenting march of necessity. <laughs> okay. And um, so we have enough space in our mind, enough awareness, so that we don't have to go in the direction that we often may have gone in the past. We have enough awareness. Well, easier said than done, right? What helps us to have that quality of space? space? First of all, a training in mindfulness. And I think there's kind of a sequential learning in mindfulness And then there are a lot of other qualities of our practice which support the mindfulness and really are complementary. So I'll talk briefly about both of those, then I'll talk some about extraordinary mind. So we, in our practice of mindfulness, we typically, as as I was saying at the beginning of the morning, we need that quality of uh, settledness of mind. We're not going to be very mindful unless we have a certain degree of concentration. And we really need training that to have the quality of freedom with our minds, our hearts, our bodies doesn't come because we want it to happen simply. It doesn't come necessarily because we come to Spirit Rock. It doesn't come because we meditate once in a while. It comes because we actually practice. And so there's nothing that can be a substitute for putting in the time for most of us. And considering that we need to do training to develop uh, freedom. There's no way around it. In order to be free, and I think this is very true for the social dimension as well, we need training. Walt Whitman once said, he was talking more about the social dimension, as citizens, Walt Whitman, the great poet of um, over 150 years ago, Walt Whitman said, we need training and utmost freedom. A line from, I think, a book called Democratic Vistas, 1871, a beautiful text about um, the spiritual dimensions of democracy. Very beautiful. Hasn't been listened to that much (laughs) for a long time. Um, And so we need that kind of training. And so the mindfulness training starts with some subtleness and then we kind of follow a sequence. We first just start tracking, noticing uh, what's going on in our minds and particularly our difficult patterns. We have to first notice What's there? We use notes. We say, okay, there's self-judgment again. Okay, there it is again. There's blaming again. Okay, there's this again. There's that again. 
And it's like uh, there's a beautiful model in the Zen tradition called the sequence of um, noticing the ox. You know, there's a sequence of 10 pictures. Some of you probably know this. And first you have to get a glimpse of the ox. The ox is like enlightenment. You know, interesting metaphor. We probably wouldn't use the same image in this culture, but you know, that's, there it is. You know, you first notice the ox and eventually at the end, one rides into the marketplace on the ox with bliss bestowing hands. This is the, the tenth and final picture. But on the way, you first have to get a glimpse of it. So we first start noticing our patterns. We have to first get a glimpse. You have to notice, okay, there it is. Okay, oh, during the meeting I was at, oh, there's that mind state again. There it was. We notice it and see it. And eventually we start noticing it more and more. But this is, it's very valuable to notice states of mind even when they're still powerful. It breaks hold of the monolithic, tyrannical mind, we might say. Just the noticing. It doesn't often feel like that. So we have to be aware that the noting makes a difference. It kind of breaks the monopoly of the automatic mind, we might say. And so we, we do that. We notice, we um, look into the mind and heart and body when something stays for a while. We sit for a minute or two or three or five or ten with unpleasant states and notice how there's a tendency to go into reactions. You know? We sit with the, the, let's say, the anger related to something that happened yesterday and I notice my mind telling stories about how bad the other person is or how about how bad I am, right? And we sit with that and we study it over and over again get really, really familiar, become experts in our own reactivity. That's what training is about, experts in our own reactivity. Eventually we start seeing patterns. We, we go from the noting to the being with to starting to see the larger patterns. Oh, when this happens, I tend to go there. You notice at one place, start noticing at others. And then you can be on the lookout, then you can go into a situation where one normally might be reactive and say, I'm going to be on the lookout for my own mind. <laughs> oh, there it is. There's my mind. <laughs> oh, I notice it. Radar's up. You know? I used to do this going when I, you know, a story I, I tell uh, often is a big training period for me was when I was uh, having meetings and I was in a position of leadership, but I was also meeting with like the director of the whole institution and I have these meetings every two weeks. And I would notice that there would sometimes be reactivity. And I would go into the meetings like it was a retreat. I would do training and then after and they went on for two years, so it kind of and most of our most difficult patterns, we know the situations where they'll arise, right? Some of them occur with the people we love the most. Many of them occur with the people <laughs> we love the most. And we can actually go to family gatherings and take it as intense training. <laughs> Very important. Don't feel guilty about that. Family situations, great training. Work situations, great training. So we study, we look, we notice patterns, and we, you know, we, we, we keep doing that, we keep learning. And we need the support often of concentration to settle the mind. We need the support of loving-kindness. As we're going into difficult states, often, 
as part of the training, we also need the training to be with beautiful states and to be with loving kindness, with joy, whether in meditation or being with the forest, the mountains, the ocean. My experience is if we're really intent on going into what's challenging, some of it's quite hard. And we need to have the lightness of mind that comes from cultivating joy and loving kindness and working with self-judgment. When you go into hard stuff, a lot of times the mind says, I am uniquely problematic with all my hard stuff. And that's very common. You have to look out for that quality of mind and also go to the loving kindness, the joy. Have a regular joy practice or loving kindness practice that really takes you into beautiful states. Have a regular practice of being with the trees or the forest. Do it every day. Say, for 15 minutes every day, I will be with beauty. Beauty is an antidote towards that can help us with the mind being a little bit unbalanced. Sometimes it gets unbalanced when we're with the hard stuff a lot. We know that. So we can have a kind of a sequence of, of learning like that. Uh, following the ethical precepts, also very important support for all of our practice. And then there's extraordinary mind. I talked about it last time. It's uh, really a high level of mindfulness or a high level, a very high level of mindfulness, a very high level of love or loving kindness starts to take us into extraordinary states. And I thought I'd just give a few readings of this state just to bring about familiarity because I think we all have some acquaintance with these states. You know, so sometimes um, in the Thai forest tradition, it's sometimes said that a high level of mindfulness, the word is sati in the Pali, is mahasati, or the great mindfulness, starts to become extraordinary. And what we'll see in a moment is that what I'm calling extraordinary actually is quite ordinary, eventually. But it seems to be extraordinary because it takes us, there are states of awareness or of peace which take us beyond the ordinary constructs of self and time and construction of the ordinary world. And we actually, I think, have all experienced these at certain moments. I'll come back to that in a little while because I think it's, it's both extraordinary and ordinary. And having ways of tapping into this extraordinary mind gives, can give us a further sense of great freedom. I'm going to try to talk about this and give you some suggestions about how to cultivate it in like five minutes because of the time. Okay, so this will challenge my teaching capacity. We'll see what happens. Okay, Um, because I want to give some time for discussion. In Buddhist tradition, extraordinary mind is often talked about as nirvana or nibbana in the Pali language. And it's um, mentioned most frequently negatively, meaning as the absence of greed, hatred, delusion. Not so much described positively as what it looks like, but mentioned as the coolness that occurs when we're not uh, driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. There are certain moments like that. And it's talked about 
sometimes through metaphors of peace or safety or uh, the deathless or the greatest shelter or the supreme joy. These are all metaphors. Um, great teacher Deepama, um, Bengali woman, one of the great yogis of the 20th century, she was asked once by Jack Kornfield, what's the nature of your own mind? And she said, there's concentration, loving kindness, and peace. That is all. I would call that extraordinary mind. A state of deep peace, total focused awareness, and the open heart. It's very similar to what we find in many traditions or in this here's passage again, I think I read this last time, from the Buddha. He talked about a quality of awareness where consciousness is signless, boundless, and all luminous. So if you unpack that, signless means that one's not really conceptualizing. They're not objects in the usual way. A quality of awareness that's, that's doesn't fixate between self and other. That has a quality of luminosity. That has a quality of being, in a way, endless. In, in the Tibetan tradition, the, the quality of this extraordinary awareness is sometimes said to include emptiness, which means the lack of conceptualizing and forming objects in the usual way, and a quality of luminosity or clarity and a quality of deep compassion. These are all aspects of this, of this ordinary awareness. And so I was, I was reflecting that quality of awareness sounds rather um, special or sounds rather unusual. But I believe that we have these experiences at times and can actually cultivate that quality of extra, extraordinary awareness. That what's characteristic of those, um, uh, this extraordinary awareness is that we don't have a lot of the usual constructions of our experience occurring. We don't have the usual sense of self. We don't have the usual sense of time. We don't have the usual division of subject and object, we might say. We don't have the usual self-enclosed quality of consciousness, but consciousness starts to get big. And I was reflecting on what are the ways that probably some of us have experienced that. And I was thinking back to ways that we may not have an ordinary sense of self. Sometimes that might occur when there's a lot of experience of love. You know, in certain experiences of care and love, there can be a sense of awareness that goes beyond ourselves. There's not the usual sense of me and you. There's just a love, a pervasive love. How many of you have touched that at times, have felt that, or think you have? There can also be, I think, in sometimes when we're so into activities, can you think of times you've been so into activities that there's no sense of self-consciousness? Sometimes people in, it's described often by musicians or artists or athletes, are so into a situation that there's only the awareness without any sense of self. It's quite beautiful. You know, I had a friend who Andy Cooper wrote a book on uh, sports. He described a lot of situations like that. 
you know, and sometimes it went into very extraordinary states of mind, like professional basketball players in the NBA talking about how they had psychic awareness of where the past was going to come from and what was going to happen when they're sometimes in this extraordinary state of mind. You know, or marathon runners sometimes talk about this. You know, or just the sense of immersion. I think my first experience like this was when I was a college student and I was so immersed in writing an essay for a deadline that I stayed up all night and was totally immersed in it. And I remember coming out of the library at 6.30 in the morning and the sky, some, my awareness was just somewhere else. And I noticed the dawn in some very special way that was like, it was extraordinary. It was like, because that stayed with me. You know, memory of that actually is right now, is right here. Sometimes those, those experiences, they're right with us, they're accessible. How many of you have had a sense of immersion like that in something where something, something um, not ordinary consciousness was there? Sometimes it's also there when we're actually so relaxed, sometimes out of exhaustion, that there's just, you know, the ordinary mind just isn't there in the same way. You know? And what's interesting in traditions, including Buddhist tradition, there are different ways to invoke this extraordinary mind. Sometimes it's when we're startled and we're just in some kind of uh, awareness that hasn't yet got it all together. Or it's something like you ever wake up sometimes from a nap and not know what planet you're on? (laughs) Anyone had that experience? (laughs) And sometimes there's actually traditions, in Tibetan tradition, one sometimes invokes the state of mind by startling you. Just notice the state of awareness right after the startle. And tune into that. That's the technique used in a lot of traditions. Or in Zen, there's the technique of the koan. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Sit with this for the next two weeks. Only think of this koan. And, you know, you might think of it as absurd in a way, but what it's doing is it's frustrating the logical mind to the point where something else opens up. It's interesting. But many of you may be here because those techniques in Zen didn't appeal to you, so you came to, came to, spirit, <laughs> came to spirit Rock. Um, in any case, what I'd like to invite you to do in the next um, week, there's more that maybe I'll bring in next time because I'm not getting to all the material that I wanted to bring in, but what I'll invite you to do is to see if you can have your radar up for practicing both with ordinary mind, finding freedom with ordinary mind, but also seeing if you can tune into extraordinary mind. With ordinary mind, I think you know what to do, right? Like to really have an emphasis on cultivating the freedom of awareness, particularly with challenging material. What can help you to do that? But then also, see if you can look for, in terms of extraordinary mind, moments when your awareness is beyond the usual constructions of self and other and objects and time. And see if you can notice those kind of moments. And if you do, tune into them and let them get a little bit bigger. Let them stay for a little while more. 
You know, sometimes we experience that in the natural world, again, when we're immersed, and try to tune into that. There are actually practices I think I'm going to bring in next week to cultivate that sense of extraordinary mind. Because I think the examples I gave can show that what I'm calling extraordinary mind is actually ordinary. It's ordinary consciousness, but somewhat freed from our usual constructions and our usual preoccupations. In the traditions that we have as our foundation, that state of extraordinary awareness is actually taken to be, as we expand it and develop it, it's actually taken to be synonymous with our deeper wisdom, our deeper love, and our deeper awareness in a way that gives a kind of freedom which does go beyond any conditions that can occur that would scare us or trouble us. And so it's something that seemed to be very important to tune into and to cultivate. And I think next time I'm going to talk, there are a lot of different ways to cultivate this, this awareness. And um, I'll, bring, I'll bring some of those in next time. I think I'll stop here and just see if we just probably have time for one or two questions. I'll just stop right here. So the question about the deeper awareness and yeah, what you were saying, I just somehow and how it is connected with with wisdom or yeah. or love, yeah. Because you know you might just say, okay, this state of awareness when I'm startled, so what? Is it really significant? And in the passages that I read, I didn't read all of them. This quality of an open awareness is actually taken to be our deeper nature that actually, in the text, it's taken to be a quality of awareness which actually goes beyond our own individual identity and hooks up with something larger, hooks up with a larger quality of awareness in the universe, with with a larger quality of love, a larger understanding. In the tradition, it's actually taken to be a quality of our being which uh, is beyond death and beyond suffering. And so that gaining access more and more to that quality of awareness and stabilizing more and more in it brings the most profound freedom. It's a development of the mindfulness. It's an extension of the, what I was calling the mindfulness of ordinary mind but it can be developed further and further. And without, in most of the traditions, without the pretty sustained development and stabilization of mindfulness, it's hard to approach this extraordinary mind with with any degree of depth or stabilization. So often it's presented sequentially. You enter into this extraordinary mind after you've already developed in other ways. And so in a lot of places, it's not even talked about. Just keep on being mindful, develop loving kindness, keep on developing, and maybe down the road or 
in a long retreat, we'll talk about this other quality of mind. But I think it's important to know because it actually is ordinary. It's, we've, you know, most of us have experienced that state and it's really valuable to know about it and to tune into it and to appreciate it. And it is, I think, connected with the, the most valued qualities of human life. Please. You said um, think about three things, noting, sit with it, and see if there's a big picture. Yeah. Um, could you just elaborate on how you sit with it and see if there's a big picture? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Maybe I'll, I'll end with this, with this question because of time. But right, this is real, and this is, um, these are developing the capacities also that lead to the ability to open to the extraordinary mind. So this is the training for how do we develop freedom in relation to ordinary mind. Probably for most of us, this is where we really have access, you know, most of the day. This is what our practice is really. It's developing greater freedom with what, come, with what comes through in our experience. So I was trying to give a sequence. So the first part is just to try to note, using noting, as to what's happening in our experience. We do this in meditation, in protected environments. We just sit there and we notice, oh, judging. Oh, body sensations. Oh, this happening, that happening. That's our practice. And we can start bringing that up also, particularly in terms of our more challenging states of mind. So start noticing that in everyday life. You know, if we have enough mindfulness, we can notice the blaming mind start to be active, let's say, with a a daughter or a parent or whatever. And we can, it's very helpful just to note it at those times. Just you know, we're, at, we're at a meeting and, and a sarcastic thought goes through our mind at the meeting. Just to note that. And again, it, we have to keep doing that even though it may feel like the negative thoughts have a lot of power. We're not doing it to make the negative thoughts go away. We're doing it to increase mindfulness, which eventually, when it's strong enough, gives us the freedom. That's an important point. The second is being present with what's there when it's there for a sustained time. So if I have a strong emotion, you know, I'm in a funk or whatever, it's to say, let me meditate now and really notice and study what's going on. We have to watch the tendency to want to have the major motivation be to get rid of it and really suspend that motivation somewhat and just to be present with it and let be whatever happens. That's not easy. So it's just to be with it, so it could be to feel it in the body. I have a difficult emotion. Let me feel it in the body. Let me notice what the mind does. Let me notice the emotional energy. And this practice works with repetition. It's not like you do it once or twice and bingo, zingo, that's it. It doesn't work like that. It works by noticing the same pattern and sitting with it a thousand times. I'm sorry to say, you've come, you haven't come to the quick, quick fix method of spiritual development. <laughs> Donald, yeah. if, I, if I may, you're not talking about wallowing in it, but you're talking about sort of a more of a detached, compassionate... Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, this is... Not a pity party. This is... Uh, this is um, yeah, we have to, in the second method, we have to distinguish that from... A uh, technical term is wallow. <laughs> Wallowing, like, what's that? A hippo, hip, that's a hippopotamus, right? <laughs> hippopotamus wallows. So they probably... Okay, so, so, yeah, it's, we, we need to be able... The very important point needs to be able to distinguish 
between being mindful and present in a balanced way and being taken over by a negative pattern or by a difficult emotion. Very important distinction. And if you feel yourself taken over, pull back. It's not helpful just to be taken away by it and wallowing. So very important. Then you might use something like mindfulness or um, loving kindness, take a walk. The basic idea is when you can be balanced in the second form of mindfulness, it's very, very helpful. When you can't be balanced with whatever's happening, then do whatever brings you back to balance, which could be mindfulness, taking a walk, taking a break, talking with a friend, reflecting, reading a book, being in nature, all these things help you bring back, come back to balance. And then the third form of mindfulness depends on having a, a lot of the first two already developed. The third form is starting to see patterns. And so we want to especially be aware, start to be aware of what's the trigger which leads to this happening. Sometimes reflection helps a lot. Eventually we can notice it in the moment, but on the way to that, we often need, it's very helpful to notice, you know, let's say you come back home and you remember, boy, that was a tough day at work and here's what happened. Oh, what triggered me to go there? And you may not have noticed in the moment, but at home, thinking about it, reflecting, you might notice, oh, what triggered me? Well, it was was that comment. And then, and actually take notes. And some of this reflection helps a lot. So it's not just being mindful in the moment, but reflecting, thinking, what actually occurred? And then starting to look out for it. Noticing our, our key reactive patterns can take a while. And it's not... We have to watch out for being overly intellectual, but reflecting and thinking about it can be helpful. And then we especially want to notice what triggers a certain pattern or what triggers a certain emotion, what triggers a certain thought pattern. So we want to watch out what triggers fearful thoughts for me. You know, maybe I might be looking at my financial picture and I look at my bank statement or I look at a bill and it triggers something, right? Very common. And it's very helpful to know what actually triggers these um, thoughts or emotions happening. So that would be to start looking at the patterns. Sometimes by reflection, eventually we can notice it in the moment. When we've studied a pattern enough, and it's the last thing I'll say, that when we then go into a difficult environment, one where we, where we might be prone to having certain patterns occur, we can be on the lookout and start actually to notice what being said at a family gathering tends to trigger that. And we can actually notice it in the moment sometimes when we have mindfulness. Oh, that person said this. I notice my stomach becoming active. <laughs> I notice my chest becoming tense. I notice my thoughts going in this direction or that. And we can actually notice that in the moment. And eventually, you know, this, this takes time. Our most difficult patterns, it can take, actually take years to work with it. You know, and of course, it's helpful for some of us to work with a psychologist or someone like that, or to work with a counselor of some kind. It can be very, very helpful for this. Okay, so um, let's just sit for a moment, and I'll invite that kind of homework, so-called, if you wish, twofold, Work with ordinary mind in those three ways of being more mindful, particularly with challenging patterns. 
And then secondly, tune in to moments when there might be that extraordinary mind. Have your radar up for when that might be there. When you're startled, when you're relaxed, when you're immersed in nature, when you're very peaceful. And tune into that and the qualities of that awareness. So sit now with what's been important or helpful for you from the morning and your intentions for the next week. We end by remembering that we do this practice both for ourselves and for others. May the fruits of our practice shared in our interaction spread out into the world, ultimately with the motivation for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. Thank you. How many of you?